Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, give us grace as we consider the final of these parties that we have studied who are involved in the Jerusalem Council. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the unity of your people. We thank you that you saw your people through this difficulty and you see us through our own challenges as we fight on behalf of the gospel in every age. I pray that you give us grace today, Lord. I know there are those here who do not know you. I pray that they would become converted even today. And I pray that your people would be convinced once more of the power and the primacy of your word as the full and final arbiter of faith and practice. We praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today we are going to conclude our study of the parties involved in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We will consider the last of these, but this final party consisting of Peter and James are in a distinct category as it relates uh, to the others in that they did not contribute to this conflict either for the good or the bad. Instead, Peter and James are tasked with resolving this matter. They are the adjudicators. And their judgment is going to settle the issue of how must a man be saved for all Bible-believing Christians henceforth and forever because their verdict is recorded in the sacred text and is, in fact, God-breathed, as all of the sacred texts are. But today, as with the other parties, we are simply going to consider the perspective of Peter and James going into this conflict and not as yet the substance of their determination. And we will consider two aspects of their perspective in particular. And the first is what they understand to be the nature and the scope of their authority as well as the basis for it. And second, we will examine their relationship with Paul and Barnabas, which is very instructive for us. But to begin, we're going to reread all of Acts 1 through 35 in chapter 15 so that we don't lose perspective on the greater issues at hand. And then after that, we'll begin to examine our first heading straightway. So, uh, Acts 15, 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, Listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren, who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So as was just stated, the first issue here to settle is what Peter and James understand to be the nature and the scope of their authority as well as the basis for it. 
And through this, we'll also glean much about proper ecclesiastical authority as it exists in our day, as it is to be practiced in this very church. But in order to understand the authority of Peter and James, you need to recognize that they are only actually one of four authorities present in this text. And all of these interrelate and bear upon each other, such that in order to understand any of them, you've got to understand all of them. And so we will endeavor to do exactly that. And as preface, let me say that three of these authorities are human. And so although they are distinct in exact nature and function one to the next, they are still similar in kind, while a fourth, as you might imagine, is alone divine and thus absolutely distinct in nature and kind. But with respect to the former category, let me give you a helpful word before we start to identify the separate categories beneath this broader heading. And that is this, no human authority is autonomous, even speaking solely in terms of this natural realm, and all human authority is delegated and therefore contingent. And when we went through the God and Government series, I spent some time explaining this to you and how the various different spheres uh, interacted with each other. For example, I recall using uh, the situation of parents. Parents have very real authority given to them by God to raise their own children. And yet, if parents bring legitimate harm to their own children, the state has not been given the sword in vain. It may and should rightly step in and take that child out of that home because the covenant from the Lord to parents is to care for their children. If they violate that, they have stepped outside of their authority and the authority of another human institution is brought to bear upon them rightly. We used also, as I recall, the example of local churches exercising church discipline. Do we have the authority to do that? Yes, absolutely. But if the nature of the sin at issue is that it is also a crime, then we defer to the power of the state with respect to that punishment so that if we find that a crime has been committed, we report it to them. I used then the example of pedophilia in the church, anything like that, any sexual abuse, it'll happen immediately. They will be reported. But the point of these examples is to inform or remind you that no authority but God is autonomous and unaccountable. So politically speaking, it doesn't matter if the man has emperor or king in front of his name. His authority is still delegated and thus limited. He is still, as Paul termed him and defined him, a deacon of God. So the principle that we find in Scripture is this, that because no man is worthy of unqualified unilateral authority, no man is given such authority save only the God-man who is Christ, who is king over all. But outside of him, there is not another example like that. Not even close. Consider, if you will, theocratic Israel. David was king. David had very real power. But he did not have absolute power consolidated unto himself, did he? And if he thought that he did, and I think that he did think that he did at the time, Nathan came and made very clear to him that that was not the case. Eli is another example. Eli was a high priest, so on the spiritual end, and not in terms of the monarchy, he had very real authority, and yet he was supplanted by Samuel, by the word of the Lord given through Samuel. But this principle, which is seen in the body politic as ordained by God, is also binding in the body of Christ as ordained by God. Inasmuch as God is a God of order, and therefore he is consistent. 
And we will see this consistency as we consider these four distinct yet cooperative authorities, beginning with the Jerusalem church here first. And to start, you need to recognize that the Jerusalem church is involved in this all the way through because they are not non-factors in what happens next. Look again to verses 11 and 12. But we, and this is Peter speaking, believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now they were silent listening to all of this, but they were not passive. They were receiving the explanation that they were warranted because they were involved and invested in both the process and the outcome. And this becomes very clear in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. And what seemed good to them was to send agents of the church in Jerusalem to the church at Antioch to relieve their concerns by relating proper doctrine to them and giving them the terms of fellowship moving forward. So the church has real authority. And this is not the first time that we have seen this. Acts 6, 1 through 6. While the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And then from there they appoint the first deacons. These passages demonstrate why some form of what is called congregationalism is a must. Now I have my own beliefs on how this should be carried out in particular. But I do recognize that others may and can differ. I am not dogmatic on this in the way that other men can be because I recognize that the mechanics of it are not actually as clear as many claim them to be. And this, by the way, is not a bug in the design of God. It is a feature. We are able to transcend many different contexts. You can have a church of 50. You can have a church of 5,000. You can have a church in this social setting, in that social setting, in this political uh, milieu or any other. And so the latitude that is given to the church is given for a reason. But even though there is latitude, we still have a framework that has got to be acknowledged and that you have to work within. And along with this, the fact that congregations have a hand in their own governance is indispensable because it is crystal clear. Clear in Acts 6, clear in Acts 15. Now, does it then follow that congregations lead? Well, are they leading in Acts 6 or Acts 15? No, they are not leading. They are being led. They're not being dragged behind elders. They're not being kept ignorant, but they're not leading either. And this is why, strictly speaking, this church is not congregational rule. We are rather elder-led congregational rule. We lead as elders, and the congregation is to submit, but we are not your masters, and you are not our subjects. And it should be said here that this form of governance has fallen out of vogue, And speaking charitably, much of the reason for this is largely because what was practiced and represented as being biblical congregationalism was in fact not. So many pastors have turned away from what they saw practiced that was falsely purported to be some form of biblical congregational government, but what was in fact a reflection more of American democracy, or even worse, raw majoritarianism, or a functional local church oligarchy that's run by a wealthy few with outsized influence, 
and undeniably the sort of things that work in many churches that call themselves congregational. I have seen it. I would be willing to venture that many of you have seen it in previous churches as well. But even though congregational involvement has often degenerated into these sorts of arrangements, that does not justify forsaking this critical aspect of biblical ecclesiology. The fact that a good thing is practiced in error does not justify the discarding of that thing. Rather, it must be recovered. It must be properly defined that it may be employed. And this comes by addressing and correcting the errors. And if you do recover this great truth and apply it in your congregation, you will be greatly edified as a result of it. This is part of the reason why the first century church was so characteristically united. You had leaders communicating very well with laity. You had laity who actually had a meaningful stake in the church, such that Christ's church in Jerusalem was called the church at Jerusalem. Or you could call it Christ's church at Jerusalem. Or you could call it Christ's church. But you didn't call it Peter's church. You didn't call it James' church. It is very clear that everyone in the Jerusalem church was a steward of that church. Not to the same degree or in the same way, but this was their church, as is the case here. If you are a member of this church, this is your church. If you, though, have this itch that remains to render this the personal possession of someone, recognize that the only one that qualifies here is Christ. And if you want to call it his, you can, but nobody else's. And Peter and James recognize these principles and precepts, and that is clear in our passage. So the church is the first authority that we have considered. The next will be Paul and Barnabas. But again here, as we did last week, we're going to place greater emphasis upon Paul because through Galatians we have more material to go on. Now the authority of Paul and Barnabas is certainly seen in their interaction with the Judaizers. But what I am after here more so is their authority vis-a-vis that of Peter and James. And for this, we need to look again to an interaction that preceded the one in Acts 15 that went very much differently, at least initially. And this is again found in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 13. When Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Fearing the party of the circumcision, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, based upon that and more that I read to you in previous weeks, can it be argued that in the relationship between Paul and Peter and James, Paul has no real authority? Well, clearly it cannot, inasmuch as he could not have exercised that which he did not possess, but he did possess real authority, and he certainly did exercise it as recorded in the book of Galatians. So as a result of this, as was stated previously, it's obvious that Paul wasn't beholding to Peter and James and their adjudication in Acts 15 in an absolute sense. As I told you uh, in a past sermon, based upon what you have written in Galatians, if Peter and James had regressed into the sort of man-pleasing at the expense of the gospel that gets corrected there, yet it had a church split. If necessary, Paul would not have simply let that issue go. He would have pushed it as hard as it needed to be, irrespective of the outcome of doing so. But how can it be, then, that Paul is not in subjection to Peter? As students of the New Testament, you know, Paul wasn't given the keys to the kingdom. Paul wasn't one of the twelve. He's one born out of due season. 
Peter is the great patriarch of the faith. So how does Paul have the right to question him? Well, that is a very important question. And it is also one that I am not yet ready to answer in this address. So we are going to move ahead and then we'll circle back to that. Next, consider the authority, though, of Peter and James. I'm going to treat these two as a unit, but in truth, they're not the same. Peter is the primary human leader of the church on earth, while James is an elder of the church at Jerusalem. But because they are acting in this passage in unison, we will treat them accordingly. These men are watchmen on the wall, and their responsibility as well as the outcome of their faithfulness is well seen in Isaiah 62. And verses 6 through 12. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates. Clear the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, And you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, speaking metaphorically, the gate of the church, to use Isaiah's words, is what? It is the gospel, that gospel of grace that is at stake in Acts 15 and affirmed. But if this gate were to fall, so too would fall Jerusalem, and in this instance, the Jerusalem church. And then the inverse of Isaiah 62 would have occurred, and that would be Jerusalem forsaken, salvation lost, because there would be no redemption of the Lord, because the instrument of our redemption is the gospel, which would have become corrupted. And before we move off of this concept of being a watchman, I want you to consider how simple this task is. And notice I did not say easy. I said simple. Is this a matter of great wisdom or towering intellect? You've been with me in this study through the book of Acts. You were there in Acts chapter 10. Is this not known? Is this not clear that salvation does not require anything but the grace of God being conferred? That the fellowship has been established between Jew and Gentile? No, this does not require much of a mind, but it does require a great deal of spine. And people will talk about the wisdom of, that is requisite to the office of pastor, and there is great wisdom needed. But most of that is in the application of these simple truths to a myriad of different situations. The fundamentals here are just not that hard. And what we have a dearth of is not uh, creme de la creme of theologians in our day, just men who are willing to make the sacrifices necessary in order to stand for those fundamental truths. As one preacher once said, the Bible's not hard to understand, it's hard to swallow. And if you're willing to be the one who makes others swallow it, well then you will indeed be found faithful, and if not, you will not. But the responsibility of the watchman is to warn 
It is to be the first line of defense against attack. That's why they cannot fall. And by way of application, pastors have many functions. We have many jobs to do. And Paul asks rhetorically elsewhere who is sufficient for these things. But we have no job more important than this one. So to recap before we move forward, James and especially Peter have tremendous authority. Uh, For 21st century Christians, Paul has more authority because he wrote more scripture. So that's sort of just a practical reality. But this wasn't true in the first century. Peter has the greater authority. He is regarded that way by everyone. But Peter does not have absolute authority, nor does James as a Jerusalem elder, and that is why Paul opposed them at a previous point. And as noted, the church also has authority, but again, not absolute authority. So are we then left in a three-way tie, a stalemate? Indians and no chief. No. Because that fourth and final authority seen in our text is not like the others. This one is the final arbiter of faith and practice for the Christian and the Christian church. And what would this be, Christian? What is that final arbiter of our faith and practice? It is the Word of God. That is what Peter pronounces in verse 11. It is a synopsis of Christian doctrine per the Scriptures. You might say a kind of creed. Indeed, it is used this way to this day in the form of sola gratia. Grace alone, in verse 11, again, is this, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. But then James quotes and expounds Amos 9, 11, and 12, verses 13 through 18 in Acts 15. James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So that is their foundation. It is the word of God, but what of Paul's? Well, consider Galatians 3 with me, and you'll see as he argues this very point. Galatians 3, starting in verse 6 and going through verse 14. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That would be a reference to Genesis 15, 6. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed in you. That would be Genesis 12, 3. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That would be Deuteronomy 27:26. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. Leviticus 18.5 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21.23 In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what is his foundation? You need any more evidence that all of the parties involved here in leading the Christians on both sides were sola scriptura or scripture alone all the way? 
And this is because in Christ's church, we have no independent authority as leaders. None. And this is true of every level of leader. It is true of the lay leader of a Bible study. It is true of the deacons in the church. It is true of the missionaries in the church that are sent out by them. It is true of the elders in the church. It was even true, wouldn't you know it, if you can believe it, of the first pope himself. He'd never met an ex-cathedra, evidently. Tyndale once famously said, in anticipation of a forthcoming access to the Scriptures not previously imagined, and I'll get extra points if I can do this because I did not convert it from the Old English, so this is kind of a mess, but he said this, I defy the Pope in all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou dost. Amen. That's absolutely right. That little farm boy was about to know more than the Pope himself. But not only this, if that farm boy did know more of the sacred text, then his is the greater authority on eternal matters over against any Pope or unfaithful pastor or just plain wrong pastor. If there is a babe in Christ who just opened their eyes to the faith, and just took their first breath as a newborn believer, and their foundation is the Word of God, and their opposition's foundation is not, then their position is to be as Paul's was, and is. Galatians 2.5, I did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Let me speak to you who are new to the faith or newer I would prefer, and I'm sure you would as well, to be more mature when heresies come. But you may have noticed, as you look around your culture, that Satan loves to murder infants in the womb. This is true, naturally speaking. It is true, far more so, spiritually speaking. He seeks to devour you while you are most vulnerable. But when he does this, know that if you stand on God's word, you are resting on the highest authority in existence. So 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Now, does this mean that everybody in the church has equal authority? No, it does not. Pastors and teachers are given by Christ to the church. We have very real authority that is conferred upon us, and is this not then a contradiction of what I have just said. No, it is not. Because we have this authority, because we are supposed to be the best studied theologians in the congregation. We have greater authority because we at least ought to have greater knowledge. And this point is critically important for us to understand in a post-Protestant Reformation world. We have been far too reactive to the papists to the Roman Catholics on this matter. They say the church has all authority. We effectively and practically say the church has no authority, and this is why we find a new church every two years. There's no claim to be made that you respect the authority of blood-bought pastors and elders, and that's why people don't grow, by the way. That's why we have uh, perpetually spiritual infants in this society, and this society reflects that. It's one of the many reasons. Christ gave men real authority because you need it. 
But the point remains that if the man in the pulpit takes his feet off of the authority of the word, he no longer has any authority whatsoever. So we have no intrinsic authority, and that's why the mantle of authority in our text and with the Judaizer situation more broadly at times belongs to this man or this group, this party, or another. Because in any and all circumstances, he who holds fast to the word has the authority. And so to wrap this point up, the perspective of Peter and James coming into this council concerning their role and responsibility is this. They are slaves to the word. They are not decision makers. They are an echo chamber for the decrees of God. They are to be no less than this and no more. And in this they have been faithful. And with that, let us consider our second and final heading, which again is a consideration of the relationship between Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas. And I will say first that all four of those men just named are powerful in Christ church. All of them have earned their places. And power in a fallen world makes men what? Makes men craven. It makes men crazy. So has it done that here? Are these men in competition with each other? Is there a contest for power, a wrestling match? One trying to supplant the other, the other trying to supplant him. Well, let's take a look. Verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them, that being Paul and Barnabas. And from that, it seems like there's no distance between these men whatsoever. Let's see what we can glean from the opening of the letter that Peter and James sent to Antioch. Verses 23 through 26. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles' greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words and settling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is only love between these men. I know it is love. It is not some nepotistic good old boys club where leaders defend other leaders because they understand that a time is coming when they're going to need a defense, irrespective of truth or righteousness. This is love in accord with truth. This is Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Life forever indeed, because the gospel that gives eternal life is preserved. And the Lord has used these men united to accomplish that purpose. Uh, we would do very well to pause here and to ruminate upon this for a moment at least. These men are at war. It is constant conflict. I have shown you that as we have gone through this book. It is one conflict to another, to another, to another, and everybody's getting it, and they're getting it all the time. War is hard. Always. There's no getting around that, but it is very much easier when you can trust your fellow soldiers. 
And Peter and James can trust their fellow soldiers because, again, verse 26 of Acts 15, Barnabas and Paul have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not as though past successes mean that forevermore a man should be trusted or that even as a result of these things, his word should not be tested. We're still just men. We might have been faithful in the past, but that doesn't mean forever. We're not to be challenged. If this were so, then the Bereans wouldn't have been commended for questioning Paul. They would have been condemned. But when a man has been faithful at great cost to himself, he has earned the benefit of the doubt. He has accrued good faith. So while Paul and Barnabas did not walk into Jerusalem like Constantine, they did enter as faithful brothers whose faithfulness was bought by Christ's blood and proved by their own. And that ain't nothing. I've said many times in the Christian faith, we have only one hero. But we have many faithful soldiers, and we do well to acknowledge and to honor their faithfulness as Peter and James did. I should also be noted, and this is no small point, that this unity came from war. Not just that they are able to fight in a war now because of present unity, but that their present unity owes to battles past tense that they have already had, and not just with each other, but against each other. This, again, I believe, is post the events uh, described in Galatians 2. There is some disagreement on that, but I am in the camp that that dissension has already occurred where Peter was rebuked sternly by the Apostle Paul. And I remember a long time ago I heard or read Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this unity that is reestablished. And he was uh, speaking of this as it is seen in 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter refers to the wisdom of Paul's writings, even though they're hard to understand. And Martin, Lloyd's, Martin Lloyd-Jones' point was this. He said, there are pastors who love to browbeat others. They love to be the ones to call other men out by name. And I am not opposed to this. I have done this when need be. But there's a certain kind of man that relishes in it and has no eye toward reconciliation whatsoever. And he said, these men, they will appeal to the example of the Apostle Paul because they love the hard words because in it they find justification for their vanity, but what escapes them is that Peter and Paul came back together. And I do not believe that the unity that they had after that great conflict was equal to that which they had before. I believe it was much, much greater. See, because when you have men who love the truth, when you have men who love the Word of God and who love righteousness, You come at them, and they will appreciate it. I have had many men do this down through the years, and some of these have approached me with trepidation and fear because they didn't want to lose the relationship. They didn't lose it. The opposite happened. There was tremendous gratitude. I've been wrong in the past. I'll be wrong in the future. But the gospel I preach matters too much, and the office I hold matters too much for me to be a fool who won't listen. So come and fight. 
and together we will grow in unity as long as we are all fighting for the truth. And if you are here and you do not know Christ, then I pray that you'll turn to him by the authority of that word of which we have been speaking. He is the aforepromised Messiah. He is the Savior. It is by his righteousness alone that you may enter into the kingdom of God. And if you forsake your sin, you repent and you turn to him in faith, he will save you even today. And there should not be another day that you wait. Do it today. Turn in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can rely upon it. We thank you that in the first century, in this issue, fundamental to the nature of our salvation, that is exactly how they approached it. And we are the beneficiaries still. We pray that you give us grace as leaders in our day to fight for that same gospel, standing upon that same word. We praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.